Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. As you might imagine, there are times that I am asked as a pastor... What is your favorite book in the Bible? And I sincerely answer when I get that question, but it's always seemingly the book that I'm in the middle of expositing to you all on the weekends because I can't help but be so entrenched and focused in that particular book that it just impresses me with its wisdom and the particularities of how it explains and presents the truth. And certainly the Gospel of Luke that we've been in has been an impressive section of God's inspired library, and I can't help but say, I'd like to say for months, but now for years, hey, this is my favorite book of the Bible right now that we are in, the Gospel of Luke. And as you might imagine, it's not just they ask me, what's my favorite book? Sometimes people in personal settings getting to know me, they say, well, what's your favorite passage of Scripture? And I guess you'd suppose that whatever week I might get that question, it would be that week that I'm so involved in that short text that I'm going to teach to the church that weekend that I would say, well, well, this text is clearly my, my favorite. And I imagine many times that's the case. But the passage that we've reached in our verse-by-verse exposition of Luke, we've come to a section of Scripture that's hard for me to say, well, yeah, this is my favorite. Is it important? Centrally important. It's just very uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, the passage that we are reaching, that's starting a 12-part exposition of the rest of chapter 22 and all of chapter 23, is one of the most agonizing sections of Scripture for us to really stop and, and ponder, to put ourselves in the sandals of the folks that are there in the first century watching this historical narrative play out. It's just a very, very difficult section of Scripture it's not a section you'd say, well, this is my favorite. I'm really enjoying this because really it's a, uh, it, it's the most humiliating death that you could possibly imagine. Matter of fact, the artists, as I often say in the Renaissance period, we couldn't even depict it the way it actually was. A, an, an absolutely naked man being treated as a criminal hanging uh, in full exposure after being beaten and his face pummeled. And as the prophet said in the Old Testament, an unrecognizable marred face with blood streaming down his body. Absolutely naked on a cross, dying. Well, that's the section we're getting to in Luke. And I can't tell you, well, this is a great, I love, this is my favorite section. But if you were to really consult the Bible, I mean, if we're going to personify the Bible and say, hey, Bible, what is your favorite section of the Bible? The Bible would say this section. At least it would say it's the principal central section. As a matter of fact, everything in the Old Testament is leading toward this particular historical scene. All the sacrificial systems, they all symbolically head toward this one historical point in biblical history. Everything in the New Testament flows from this section of the Gospels. The things that we're called to do in terms of the Lord's Supper, in remembering something historical that relates to our salvation, zeroes in right here on this scene that begins today in our study of Luke. The entryway to the agony of Christ, the passion of the Christ, it's sometimes called, in the old sense of that word, and that is the suffering of Christ. It's important to Scripture. It is central in Scripture. Although I must warn you, we are going to enter into something that's not about gratuitous scenes of torture that we're going to try to exploit to the place of making us all feel grossed out. Be, oh, look, this is so awful. I mean, we have to take it for what it is, but it's worse than that. It's an innocent person. Someone we learn is giving himself as really the central expression of the first verse you ever memorized. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. It explains the verse everyone learns first. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave him. What does that mean? Gave him how? To come chill out and hang out with us for 33 years? No. He came to send him to this agony that we're about to step into. That's a remarkable statement. And yet it is in a world that loves to uh, kind of pander to the lowest common denominator of the definition of love, this kind of sentimental, green, fuzzy feeling in our gut. The Bible says, no, here is the best demonstration of love. As Jesus said, no greater love is anyone than this, that a person would lay down their lives for a friend. And Romans 5, 8 says, this is the ultimate demonstration. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And he dies not by decapitation. He doesn't die by being hung. He doesn't die by being thrust through with a sword. He dies by being hung on a torture rack and slowly dying before the eyes of our imagination in the text that we're about to get into. And so in that sense, I just got to warn you, we're getting into a very sober part of Scripture, and yet it is the central part of Scripture. And even those looking from the outside in have known this. Oh, you Christians, particularly in earlier generations than ours, we've glossed ours over, made it very plastic. But certainly in the olden days, they say, those Christians are all about that death of Christ. They're focused on the death of Christ. And it's odd. They seem to celebrate and rejoice in the fact Christ died for us. What does that even mean? Christ died for us. Well, that's what we're getting into here. And we get the answers in the symbolism that's used in the text of Scripture that comes from the words of Christ himself. Let me read for you the first entry into the crucifixion section of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 39 of Luke 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. We're going to study this morning from verses 39 through 46 as we see Jesus in a familiar scene. If you know the narrative of Christ's death, it is preceded by a time in a garden, a garden where he's praying, a garden where he's praying in agony. And you might picture the apostles as really tired and kind of conked out because they're so tired. This text reminds us they're not conked out because they're tired. They're conked out. They fall asleep when they're supposed to be praying because they're in sorrow. This whole thing is just painful, gloomy, dark, agonizing. Let me read it to you, not to try and bring you down this morning, but try to let you know why the church would sing songs and celebrate and do something called worship and praise God for the death of Christ As it begins to unfold in our study of Luke, beginning in verse 39, let me read for you through verse 46 in the English Standard Version. It says, and he, that is Christ, of course, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. Remember, this is Thursday. They've had the upper room, which is not far, at least traditionally. It's been honored even from the first century and certainly under Hadrian's rule. You've seen Christians acknowledging this place, which is south by the Mount of Zion. If you know the hills of Jerusalem, if you've been there to modern Israel, they still have a place where they recognize the Last Supper, and it may in fact be the place. It probably takes you about 15 minutes to walk from Mount Zion along the edge of the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, down across the Kidron Valley and up into the upper ascending slopes of the Mount of Olives. Olives, because olives were very important, obviously, in the ancient world. It was a staple of the ancient world. It was not only used as a very important dietary function for Israel. It was used as a commodity. It was used as a fuel for their lamps to keep the city lit at night. Uh, it was used medicinally as medicine, as the number one medicinal uh, salve for the people. And, of course, in ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, is used ceremonially Gethsemane, you might know that name. That was the name of this particular garden, as the other gospel writers tell us. Geth in Aramaic, it means press. Semene, olives. It's the olive press. It's where they would take a a big stone and they would press out the olives to get the oil out of it. And this was full of of olive trees. Olive trees, if you go to Israel today, you go to Gethsemane, take a tour, someone tours you through there. Or if you go this next summer, Pastor Pete, Pastor PJ will tell you these olive trees have been known to live over 2,000 years, believe it or not. The ones in Gethsemane are estimated to be about 900 years old. Big, fat, kind of ugly, twisted trees. The staple of the ancient world. And in this garden, that's named after olives. He's in an olive garden, kind of an out of the way, off the road, up from the Kidron Valley place, a great place for them to pray, a great place for the disciples to meet in a quiet setting. He is now there, and his disciples are there. They've had the Last Supper, and, it's, and, and Christ now proceeds to pray. And he's going to tell his disciples to pray. Verse 40, and when he came to the place, which we know in the other Gospels is called Gethsemane, the oil press, He said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, that's an interesting thing. We need to unravel that. He repeats that at the end of our passage. You need to not be tempted. I don't want you to be vulnerable for temptation. Temptation is always the prelude to sin. I don't want you to sin. There's some particular temptations here that they're tempted to sin in. And it's already been forecast with the forecast of Peter's denial. And he wants them to pray. Get strong. Get ready. Brace yourselves. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. Interesting way that Luke kind of in, in a very vivid way talks about that. The other disciples, the other apostles talk about that being a, you know, a little distance further, about a stone's throw. You figure that one out, how far that is. And he knelt down and he prayed. And he said what? Verse 42. 
He says to the Father, here's Christ now, the perfect one, the innocent one, never had a bad thought, never had a lustful thought, never was greedy, never said anything he shouldn't have said, never did anything he shouldn't have done. He is now praying that something that's about to happen to him wouldn't happen. Father, if you are willing, it's conditional, if you are willing, remove this. Now here's the imagery, this cup from me. Cups are filled with some kind of liquid. The liquid is to drink, the drinking of something in a cup, very common image throughout the Bible, and it's an analogy and a picture of something. And in this case, apparently a bad thing. Whatever's in a cup must be bad to drink. You don't want to drink it. It's painful to drink. Your thoughts of drinking it are going to lead you, as it says here soon, to agony. But he says in verse 42, I want you to remove this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, don't over-Christianize that word, that means want, not what I want, not the thing that I prefer, but yours implied, your wants, your desires, what you prefer, let that be done. I'm resolved to that. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. Luke only gives us the reason they were sleeping. The other ones say, just because their eyes were heavy. Their eyes were heavy because they were tearful. They saw this crashing down, this thought of a Christ ascending the throne of David and ruling. Now we recognize the chief priests, the scribes, everyone's against you and we're about to be crucified. And then you had to go tip those tables over there in this last week and and you made everyone mad at you and this is all coming down and you've told us that there's going to be a betrayal and we saw Judas slip out and man, this is awful. And so when it's time to pray so they can be strong, they're sleeping because of their pain, their sorrow, their agony. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? We know this happened more than once, multiple times in this garden scene. Luke only records the summary that it happened, that he says, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And it leaves us with that. Before then, in verse 47, as we'll see next time, a crowd shows up with Judas to betray him. Cup. Circle that word. Highlight it in your devices. Verse 42. Underline it in your Bible. Remove this cup from me. Maybe you were here a couple of Good Fridays ago when I tried to illustrate on Good Friday that the death of Christ was Christ in the garden considering drinking a cup. I'd like you to turn to an Old Testament book. We didn't have the the opportunity to do that on Good Friday, but let me do that now. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah 25, We have if you're having a hard time with that in your old Gutenberg Bible, go to the Psalms, turn right five books and you'll find the major prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. A lot of sorrow here. Another example of a passage most people aren't going to say, here's my favorite passage. This is, not a, this is a weeping prophet about the most incendiary part of the pain in his own life. And it has to do with the cup. And here's the imagery. But let me give you some background. So drop down to verse 8. We'll get to the cup imagery, which is really what's in view in Christ's mind. And we see this. Lay out the, we'll lay out the, the whole equation of this. Verse 8, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the the north. I'm going to call the northern tribes up there, declares the Lord, and beyond those, up and over into the Chaldean, the Mesopotamian area, this up-and-coming king named Nebuchadnezzar. He's powerful. He's ruthless. He's the Hitler of the day. I'm going to call for him, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Oh, my enemy. No, 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 wait. What does it say? My, My servant. I'm going to use this evil dictator and I will bring them against this land, the land of Judah and its inhabitants and all the surrounding nations and I will devote them to destruction. And I'm going to make them a horror. They're going to be like the black and white pictures that we see from the Holocaust and we look at them in horror. That's what I'm going to do here to my place, my land, Mount Zion. Mount Moriah, the temple in all of its glory that Solomon had built. I'm going to make it a horror. And people are going to see it in the ancient Near Eastern culture of hissing. They're going to hiss at it. They're going to go, oh, this is awful. And an everlasting destruction. Moreover, I will banish. Think about all the good things that are going on here now as people are bustling about in their sin and rebellion against God and their idolatry. I'm going to banish from them the voice of mirth. There's a word you haven't used this week probably. Mirth, happiness, joy, parties. And the voice of gladness. Not going to hear any of that anymore. The voice of uh, probably the most celebratory thing we do, a a, a wedding reception, the voice of bridegroom and the voice of bride. You're not going to hear that anymore. 
and the grinding of the millstones and kind of that smell when you pass in and out burger, you know, like, oh, lunch, we should stop and get something. The idea of preparing food, you're not going to hear that. And the light of the lamp, those flickering lamps in the windows of these ancient buildings of Israel and up in the Old Testament times even come up to the city wall and see this glistening twinkling of the lamps. I'm not going to see any of that anymore. Why? Verse 11, because the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And after 70 years are completed, then I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. See, Habakkuk said, I can't believe in the Old Testament as the land of Judah, the tribe of Judah was being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, I don't understand. I don't understand how you could bring the kings of the north of Assyria over here to take our brothers from the north and tear them down in 721. I can't believe that you're assembling another pagan king to come and destroy us. And God is saying, listen, you need to understand. They may be worse than you in a lot of ways, but I'm using them as a tool of recompense. A tool, there's the word, Look at verse number 13 first. I will bring upon the land the words that I've uttered against them, everything written in this book. And the book is this, obey me, you'll be blessed. If you disobey me, you're going to be punished. With Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make make slaves even of them. So they're going to be punished and you're going to be punished. I'm going to punish the Babylonians for their sin. I'm going to punish you for your sin. And I will recompense, there's the key word, I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now I'm going to symbolize this in this analogy, this vision that that Jeremiah has. Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, this bitter cup with the dregs in it. Take it and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Hold them back, pull their beard down, take this chalice and pour that wine, that poisonous wine, pour it into their mouths. Make them drink it. And they shall drink, and they're going to stagger, and they're going to be crazed because the sword that I'm sending among them. So I took the cup of the Lord from from his hand, and I made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem, the city of God, the cities of Judah, its kings, its officials. Why? To make a desolation and a waste and a hissing and a curse as at this day. Not my favorite text, probably not your favorite text. But nothing more than expansion of a verse you learned as a kid. Here's the other verse you learned as a kid. The wages of sin is death. It's a shame that verses like John 3.16 can roll off of our tongue. And we can say that without a lot of visceral reaction to what it means that God gave his only son. And it's something that we can sit and kind of yawn our way through the wages of sin is death and not realize what's being said. The wages of sin. Wages. That's an accounting term. The wages of sin. We have an accounting term here, the recompense. There's a debt because of your sin and your transgressions, and it needs to be paid. And the Bible says the payment is a cup, and the cup is bitter. And it's a bitter cup symbolizing the judgment that you deserve. Earlier in the night when Jesus was with his disciples, he took a cup, and he called it the cup of the covenant in his blood. Matthew records it as the cup of the covenant in his blood, which is for the forgiveness of sins. It's a cup. It's a cup that Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 10 is a cup of blessing where God has blessed us because of what's in that cup. And we're to drink it. It's the cup of blessing with which we bless. That word bless, just a compound word of the, of the little particle ooh, which means good, and the word logia, which means to speak. It's something that we speak really well of. We are so grateful for what that cup represents It's the cup of blessing where God can say good about me. God can put his favor on me. God can see Mike Fabar and say, he's my guy, good guy. He's on my team. He's righteous and holy. How can you see me that way? I'm not. Well, because that cup and what it represents, this new covenant promise that Ezekiel looked forward to that would be the thing that would cleanse me from my sin. And if I would have that blood, that picture of the payment of my sins, that the wages of sin is death, When people bleed out, it's because they're dying. And that blood, that picture of that covenant commitment that you will take some kind of payment, a recompense for sin, and I can take that from the outside and I can have that applied to me. And in that cup of blessing, I'm going to stand back and bless it. The cup of blessing which we bless. And he says, take this cup and do this in remembrance of me. And he says, remember that when you connect my death with this symbol, this cup, 
Remember that that is the ticket. That is the difference. That is the key. That is the catalytic distinction between being punished for my own sin and having to drink the cup of God's wrath and having it paid for by someone else so that I can have the cup of blessing. That distinction is so contrasted in Scripture. Jeremiah spoke of a cup of consolation. Cup of consolation is one thing. Here, drink the hot cocoa. You're not feeling well. It's been a really terrible scene reading the headlines here in Jerusalem. There's one thing to have the cup of consolation. There's another thing to have the cup of God's blessing that says, now here's the new Jerusalem for you. Come out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. You don't deserve heaven. Do you know that? I don't deserve heaven. Every non-Christian has this sliding scale about what they think they deserve because they're so engrossed in lateral comparisons. And the Bible says, you and I need to come to grips with the fact that when we look at the scene of Christ going to the garden and agonizing about going to the cross and then going to the cross, this is all about payment, a recompense, drinking the cup that you and I deserve. And I'd like to personalize it this morning to summarize what I'm saying here in your first point. Number one, you need to realize that his pain, which just the thought of it was agonizing for him, was your penalty, 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 penalty. If you're non-Christian this morning, you don't get this. I understand it. You don't get it. The gospel's veiled to you. You don't get this. I understand that you don't get it. You don't get it. Penalty. I don't deserve a penalty, you say. But the Bible says you do. Just the hard facts I know you say, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Ask the average non-Christian. You may be asking yourself right now, why would I need a penalty from God? You ask the average non-Christian about heaven when you die. I mean, most people naturally, intuitively, ontologically believe there's got to be some kind of judgment after this world. There's probably a good place and a bad place. I didn't just pick that up from culture. I picked this up from conscience and creation. And so I know there's something afterwards. I ought to be prepared for it. Very few people, very few in, in single digits will deny that reality, at least in some definition in their mind. You ask them, why are you going to go to the good place, not the bad place? Because most people think they're going to the good place. And they'll say, because I am a good person. Ask a teenage driver if he's a good driver. I read a study recently, very short, but a summary of a real demographic study of students who drive. And they were asked, how many of you are good drivers? And by the I mean, above average, you're better than most out there. What was the percentage of students who drive, teenagers, who think they're good drivers? What's the percentage? What do you think? Throw a number out. 50%? 60%? Those arrogant 70%? 93%. Said, oh yeah, I'm above average. Most people think they're going to heaven because they're good people. You know what the insurance company doesn't care about? They are not a part of this. Everyone gets a participation trophy affirming everyone to make them feel good. And if you think you're great, do whatever you want. You can do anything. That's not the world the insurance agents live in. They live in the, the world that's completely... They look at real hazards, real statistics, and the statistics, of course, are just the opposite of what most teenage drivers think about their driving. They say, you are a radically high risk. As a matter of fact, they say you're three times more likely as a teenage driver to be in an accident than people that are older than you. Three times more... And so guess what they do? You're going to pay for that. We've got to pad our insurance trust. We've got to have a lot of money in the bank to pay because you're going to get in an accident. You are more likely than other people to do that. You get distracted. You text. You drive. You drink. You drive. You guys are you're just a mess. And they sit there and go, no, I'm not. I'm really good. As a matter of fact, male drivers, the number one premium, right? You've got to pay more for a male, young, teenage driver than any other demographic of driver out there. Even the slow drivers, you get behind over here, and you think, oh, those people are terrible drivers. They're not the worst. They're bad, but they're not the worst. <laughs> and by the way, it's the male drivers who think they're the best drivers as teenage drivers. Because the insurance companies live in the world of reality because they have to cut the checks. There's a recompense. There's a payment to be made. In the minds of teenagers... They live in a world of their own self-assessment. And parents sometimes are dumb enough to help them believe their kids' fanciful views of themselves instead of helping them realize, here's the real world. Evangelists have two opportunities. They can go to people, like I can go to you this morning. I can somehow look at the death of Christ 
as some kind of, I don't know, expression of love, as an example of martyrdom. I can, I can somehow spin it. I mean, it'd be hard for me. I'd have to be creative, but there's a lot of guys doing it really well today. Effectively, it's terrible. It's, it's heinous. It's heresy. But they're good at trying to make you feel that the death of Christ had nothing to do with you deserving penalty. There's an old phrase in theology, and it's very important. It starts with the word penal, substitutionary atonal. Penal means that it's a payment and a penalty that needed to be paid. And that Christ died as a penal substitute so that he drank the cup of God's wrath and anger so that you wouldn't have to. And don't stop me at the door like the lady did. I tell the story often, and I said something about God's anger, and she stopped me at the door and says, God doesn't get angry. My God doesn't get angry. And I like when they make it really personal. My God doesn't get angry. And I said, well, then your God is not the real God because the real God gets angry. Well, no, maybe in the Old Testament, but as I often say, took a nap in her testament period, woke up, feeling so much better in the New Testament. The God of love in the New Testament. That kind of Marcionism, if you know uh, heresy, that's just wrong. It's, it's sinful. And, you know, Stanley and others today trying to that or they'll unhitch the new testament from the old testament don't get me started with all that but they're all about the idea that god is not like that i love to quote revelation chapter 14 not because it's one of my favorite passages but because all that imagery of drinking the cup of the dregs of god's anger in the old testament let me read it let me read it here it comes you think that's relevant not just for now in the future speaking of what's happening on the last generation of people with with iPhones in their pockets, the iPhone 34, whatever we're at at that point. He says, I will make them drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. That's a New Testament passage. God's got time to kind of get over his anger towards sin. We've got a lot of time. This is the 66th book of the, of the Lord's God-breathed library, and he's still angry. Angry at what? Angry at sin. And guess what? Sinners get punished for their sin. They get recompensed for their sin. That is unless God would somehow devise a way in his sovereign plan to relieve people of that penalty by sending a perfect substitute. Atonement means that that sin that was there is wiped away. Penal penalty, substitutionary. He suffers for you. You know the verse from our partner's manual, don't you? First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered for sins the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ suffered for sins once for all. The righteous, he was righteous one, perfect one, for who pair in Greek. That's a strong word. It's a simple sentence. You can read it, but you need to read there in a penal substitutionary covering of your sin. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. First Peter 3.18. Unless God can devise a way because he cares for sinners to say, I want sinners not to have to suffer the consequence of their own sin. Realize his pain was your penalty. It was your penalty. Your penalty. You need to see Christ in his agony, agonizing over whether or not to pay for your sin. That's what was going on in this text. And of course, you know what happens. He does. And he becomes a sacrifice. And God treats him as though... He had done everything sinful that you have done. And I'd like you to think about that as unpleasant. We're already in an unpleasant passage in an unpleasant sermon. Compass 2020, let's grow the church. Now let's preach how the horrible sermon like this about how awful we all are. Let's see how that works out. Operation crowd you know, reduction, right? <laughs> Here we go. I want you to think about your sin. Think about the things that if I put it on the screen right here and I had video of you saying those things, doing those things, I had the brainoscope on your forehead thinking those things, the things you try to hide and put under the carpet so no one sees, right there, here it is. Think of that. And I want you to think that the father was willing to put his son in the crosshairs of all of his anger about those things on that screen. And he said, I am willing to punish him so that you don't have to be punished. His pain, and he's grieving, he's agonizing over doing this. And he's saying, if there's a way for me to get out of drinking this cup, I do, not, I do not want to be treated like those people in that church in Orange County that are hearing that sermon. I don't want to be, I don't want to be treated like I'm them. And yet that's exactly the penalty. We read it. Not long ago in our daily Bible reading, 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin, the righteous, 
to be sin. He was the target of all of God's righteous indignation towards sin. The recompense, the payment. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. His pain in this scene for the next 12 weeks that we will look at was your penalty. Substitutionary atonement. Falling out of favor today. A lot of guys, particularly here in Southern California, lots of them in Orange County, in pulpits, they're talking about Christ's death in a completely different way than the New Testament talks about his death because all that stuff that predicates the message of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, they've gotten rid of. And that is that God's not mad at us. I cut this verse in half, as you see on your worksheet here, between part one and part two of verse 42. And I want to make that distinction between what he wants his will, in his humanity, fully human, fully God, he says, remove this cup from me. It's got an asterisk on it, if you're willing. And of course, he knows. In verse 42, bottom of the verse, he says, nevertheless, here's the only hope you ever have of not going to hell. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was willing to do this. And not only that, verse 43, when God sent an angel from heaven, he didn't send an angel to deliver him from the mess. As Christ actually said on the cross, I could call 10,000 angels to deliver me from this, but I'm not stopping this. And the father's not only not stopping this, he's sending angels to strengthen him. Hang in there. We're going to the cross. You're going to drink the cup. You're going to pay for their sin. You're going to get the penalty that they deserve. It's like the most natural reaction to that. If anyone understands the problem is thanksgiving. Number two, you need to thank God for his costly love for you. He loved you so much that he demonstrated that love that while you sat there with no hope as someone transgressing against his law he sent his son to die for you and if you know that passage in in Romans 5 he says someone might die for a good person someone might even dare to die for a righteous person but Christ died for us while we were sinners Again, I'm preaching to people, and I know that there's people here that get it, but there are people here that don't get it, and certainly lots and lots of people from the masses of people that hear this on the radio that don't get it. I can assure you there are lots of people that don't get it, and here's why you don't get it, because of the thing we just talked about, sin. You don't think you are a sinner. Thank God for his costly love. You'll never see that as a necessity, and you'll never be grateful, profoundly, humbly grateful for it unless you recognize your own sin. When was the last time you sincerely felt to the core of your, your being, I know I'm an unworthy sinner? You can't be saved without it. J.C. Ryle said this 115 years ago, whatever it was, when he preached that sermon. And he said, you know, the foundation of anything really in Christianity, saving Christianity, is you understanding sin. If you don't understand that, hopelessly lost. The first thing to be attacked in modern Christianity is the concept that you and I are sinners and undeserving of God's love costly love let's talk about love for a second i know a lot of us picture god in his divine kitchen with pictures of us hanging on his refrigerator with heart-shaped magnets and it's pictures of us in our nice little sweaters and he goes oh i love those kids i love them well i'll do anything for those kids just like you think about your orange county kids i just love them to death they're just those little rug rats don't picture god in his celestial kitchen with you in a heart-shaped frame on his desk or on his counter i'd like you to think of benghazi with people having rocket propelled grenades over their shoulder rocket rocket launchers i want you to see them with their torches i want you to see them assaulting the compound where god lives in libya there picture that and those are the people that god says i'm going to reach out and love them You and I assaulted the holy God of the universe by every single thing that we've done in rebellion against his law. Not just the sins of transgressing his rules, knowing the right thing and not doing it. Or or not only doing the thing he told us not to, but the sins of omission, not doing the things that we know we should do. All of that. 
And he said, those are the people I choose to love. That's love that demands our life, our soul, and our all. It's amazing love. It's a love that most people in the Twitter universe, when they talk about God's love, they have no idea what it is that the Bible presents as God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his son to be agonized in a garden so that he could go to a cross and be executed completely naked and beaten. Having to march through the towns with no clothes and a cross over his shoulder as people spit on him and Roman soldiers beat him. That's how much God loved the world. That didn't even make sense to someone who understands sin. It's a costly love couple of problems we have, I think, when we think of forgiveness, because this is all about forgiveness, right? Yeah. Why is it love? Because I get to be forgiven. I get to be forgiven. You can sit here today. You can sing the songs. We're about to take the Lord's Supper, and you can say, it is so great that his blood, his body, broken on the cross 2,000 years ago, that is my forgiveness. Oh, I'm so glad. But you don't think about what those symbols represent. And I'll tell you why, because we quote passages like this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know what we think about? He's a God who says, if you confess, I'll forgive. Confess, forgive. Confess, forgive. And we think that's his job. He's just a, a nice, loving God. He's got my picture on his fridge and he loves me so much. And all I got to say is, oh, dad, I'm sorry. And he forgives me. In Leviticus, the picture of sacrifice is laid out I said all the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to this scene that we're starting for the next 12 weeks to unfold in the Gospel of Luke. And it started in chapter 1, verse 4, with the worshiper coming with a lamb as a guilt offering, a burnt offering. A burnt offering meant it was all burned up. It was None of it was given even for food for the Levites. It was the picture of your sin, guilty before God. And you were to come with that animal, put your hand on the head of that animal, stand before the priest... And the priest was in to see that this spotless, blemishless lamb that you brought was representing you. And then you were to take the knife and slit the throat of this animal. And it's a gross, uh, awful scene. Blood pouring out of the neck as it collapses to the ground. Blood spilling on your sandals, on your big toes. And then you were to take that blood and you were to throw it on the side of the altar. And that animal was to be hoisted up on the giant barbecue in the middle of the, of the patio of the worship center. And burn it, burn it to a crisp. Now it smells really good. I guess that's the only positive thing there. And the Bible says that it smells good. But it's... A picture of an innocent animal dying so that you don't have to. That's the focus of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it was repeated over and over and over again so you could see here is a payment for sin. We now should have no need for that because all we have to do is look back in our mind's eye to the history of Christ's crucifixion. And therefore, when we say, confess your sins and he'll forgive you, we should see very clearly right in between that. Matter of fact, it's represented with that word dekaios, or righteous or just. If we confess our sins, he's faithful, going to do what he says, and he's just. He's just. What does that mean? He's going to do the right thing about right and wrong. And the right thing about right and wrong is not forgiving sinners. No, it's about holding them responsible. But he forgives us. Why? Because our mind should rush back to the payment. Let me read for you from Leviticus chapter 5. You can identify with the first part of this and the last part of it which is confess and forgive. And I love the way it's put in verse 5 of Leviticus 5. When a man realizes his guilt in any of these things he just talked about and he confesses the sins he's committed, I like it so far, I know the next verse, verse 6 must be, and the Lord forgives him. No, that's not what's next. Oh, that's coming. Verse 10 says, and he will be forgiven. Even bottom of verse 6, the priest is going to make atonement for his sins. He'll be forgiven. By the time this story is over, he is forgiven. But listen to verse 6. Man realizes his guilt. I'm guilty. He sees his sin, something our culture struggles with. And then we confess it. We agree, God, we're sinners. Then that man, here it comes, shall bring to the Lord as his compensation. Love that translation from the ESV. Bring his payment, his compensation for his sin, the sin that he's committed. Bring that lamb as an offering for sin. And then the priest will make an atonement for his sin. And then, three verses later, he'll be forgiven. If he confesses his sin, he'll forgive you. You're missing a few words there that represent the pyramid, a huge, like, 
an iceberg of theological truth. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous or just. And that justice came to bear on a cross when the father could say, a debt needs to be paid, but I paid it in my own son. And then he'll forgive you. You understand that. You understand the costly nature of his love because you and I forgive out of fiat. Like, hey, I'm sorry. You say, okay, that's how you were taught to forgive. Someone wrongs you, go, oh, okay, I guess it's fine. No problem. We're, we're square. Well, you're not square. Someone wronged you. And we've wronged God with grenades through the windows and torches and rocks. And we've assaulted the holy God of the universe. And there's got to be a payment for that. And God now, inside his CIA compound in Benghazi, if you will, takes his only son and crucifies him so that he can forgive the rebels that are assaulting his holy compound. That's costly love. It should invoke and garner thanksgiving from our hearts. If we don't thank him, there's a problem. We study this in Acts 17, 17, after the healing of the 10 lepers, one returned to give him thanks and Jesus didn't say, I'm so glad I'm, I'm batting 10%. That's good, right? It's okay. He said, where are the other nine? Where's everyone else? Did I not heal 10? Thanksgiving is non-optional for us. You got to tell your soul like the psalmist in Psalm 103. If your soul is not engaging in Thanksgiving, you have a talk with your soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. You and I need to thank God for his costly love, and that's something that is critically important because of the depth and the cost of this. The father didn't send an angel to deliver him. He sent an angel to strengthen him. In his sweat, by the way, let me just take a little sidebar here on what some people call the bloody sweat passage. I don't believe this is, as some people have said, blood coming from his capillaries and his pores. I don't think that's what's happening here. Matter of fact, read the passage again. His sweat became like great drops of blood. Now, if you cut your brow or your forehead... You had a cut on your face and it was really bleeding. It would be dripping, dripping, dripping. There's a kind of sweat that comes not because you're hot and perspiring because your body's trying to cool itself down. The eccrine glands in your pores will secrete water and salt and potassium, a liquid that comes out of your pores, and it's there so the evaporation process, God and his design of our bodies, so it would cool it down, kind of get it back to the right temperature so we can continue to function. Sweat, it's important. It's another kind of sweat. Sometimes deodorant commercials will talk about it. It's called stress sweat. And it's not the eccrine glands that secrete it. It's the apocrine glands that secrete it. And they are connected usually to the hair in your, your body, in your armpits, in your scalp. And that produces a different kind of secretion that's not just water and salt and potassium. It has, it has proteins in it and fatty acids in it. And it's much thicker. And it comes out not because your body's hot. It comes out because your body is sweating because you're stressed out. Matter of fact... You look that all up, a lot of times you'll see ads for deodorant that's going to help you or not you know, have be a smelly person in your job interviews or whatever. But if you have a problem with this, you start looking at medical websites, you'll find this. Hey, you get a lot of this kind of sweat that's thicker and you know, milkier and, and smellier and all that, then you need to engage in some kind of like Eastern meditation or get a therapist or get some exercise Whatever you do, you got to minimize the stress in your life, man. I, I mean, you got way too much stress. You got a lot of that stress sweat coming out. That's good advice, I suppose, from the world, which I don't care much for what they say. But for Christ, the Father had some advice for his son in the garden, and that wasn't, hey, chill out. It's let me send an angel while your apostles are asleep. And bring someone alongside of you to put their arm around you say, you can do this. Don't give up. Don't, don't go back. Power through this stress. And it was so stressful. The Bible says, as this angelic messenger of some kind has got his arm around him in the garden, great drops were falling from his face. This stress sweat. And it wasn't that God, the Father, was saying, hey, let's just try and minimize this. He's saying, power through it. Keep going. You've got to be thankful for that kind of love. You, I can assure you, have had no one love you as much 
as Christ. You have other people make your tummy flutter. Other people get the green fuzzies about. Other people have done some really nice things. And you've gone, oh, you've done all that. But you've had no one love you like this. And you ought to be profoundly thankful. If you're thankful when someone brings you flowers or thankful when someone pays for your, your lunch, well, that's nothing compared to someone that was agonizing, who was about to be treated like he was the one who did all the evil, sinful things that you and I have done. But there's more. And it's almost like, man, can't you lighten up on your apostles? Verses 45 and 46. He rose from prayer. He came to his disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said, why are you sleeping? Well, you just answered the question. At least Luke did because they're all stressed out too. And they fell asleep because they're sorrowful. And you know what Jesus says to his disciples? In essence, read between the lines. Like, that's no excuse, man. I know you're stressed out. There's no excuse. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you, oh, yeah, get some rest. He doesn't take a blanket or take a cloak and kind of, oh, Peter, just sleep away. James, I know you're stressed out. It's, I get it. I understand. Get up and pray. Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What was the temptation? The temptation was the thing that he'd already predicted. And this is interesting because in his sovereignty, he knew they would scatter. The shepherd would be struck. The sheep would scatter. He'd already said to Peter, the number one spokesman, hey, you are going to deny me three times. He knew all that. And yet he says, you need to do what you can so that you don't fall to that kind of temptation. Don't back down when all the pressure ramps up. Follow my example. I'm not falling asleep from my sorrow. I'm powering through. I'm sweating like crazy here with stress sweat. Time for you to sweat this one out with me. The disciples had vowed their loyalty to Christ, Peter, the most vocal of them. And while he had bigger loyalties in his mouth than he did in his heart, Christ certainly wanted him to express his love. He says to him in John 21, after his failure, he comes back in that post-resurrection appearance and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? If you love me, then feed my sheep, tend my lambs, do what I told you to do. And here he says, I told you guys to pray. Look back up at it. Verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. No, I'm too tearful. I blotted my tears. I'm just going to take a little nappy nap. Nope. Get up and pray. Because there's something much worse that's going to happen. If you don't obey me in this, you're going to disobey me in a much bigger way down the road. Obey me. You should not only be thankful for what Christ did for you. You ought to love him back. How? By doing what he says. Number three, if you're taking notes, love him by doing what he says. That is what the Bible teaches from beginning to end. Jesus said it, did he not? John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said this in Luke 6, 46. Why would you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Don't tell me you love me. Don't tell me I'm the king of your life. Don't tell me that I am your Lord. Don't say any of that. Unless you're willing to express that through what you do. So many of us are concerned about big sins, and rightfully so. You're afraid you're going to sin big. This week, you don't want to cheat. You don't want to steal. You don't want to cuss at someone. You want to do the right things. Because those things that ruin your reputation, it would be terrible. So you're praying that you don't sin, and that's good, and you should commit yourself, resolve yourself to that, and God's Spirit wants to help you through that. And you may have to sweat it out in your temptations. But he's saying now there's an intermediate, there's a means of obedient activities that will help you not fall there. You need to obey me now in something that seems much smaller, and by the way, much more easily dismissed as not a big sin, and that is in your spiritual disciplines, which right now, we come here often to pray. You're in the garden. I need you to pray right now. And if you don't pray, you're disobeying me. Stop. You love me? Pray. So that you won't show your disloyalty to me down the road in something else. I would like you to think about doing what God says, that you would think about the big things in life, perhaps the things that you have fallen in, and say, God, I'm so grateful that he removes from us our sin as far as the east is from the west. That's great. Celebrate that. And then I hope you come out of that saying, as so often is the case in Scripture, I am now resolved to go the other way. It's called repentance. I'm going to say no to this, what I've done. I'm going to regret it. I'm going to feel the guilt. I'm going to recognize Christ's death on a cross paid for it, and I'm going to resolve to walk in favor with God by my behavior and my words and my actions. But here's the other thing. It's all those little things that Christ is now commanding that sometimes you dismiss because you've got all these excuses and no one's going to go, you didn't come to church all that much this year? No one's going to say that. You're going to do that when you completely destroy your life with those big sins, but it's the little sins most people go, I understand. If you're not serving, you know you're called to serve as a steward of the manifold grace of God and 
in, in our church. If you're not serving, you're in sin. Sorry. Small sin. At least that's how people see it. I mean, it's not like you cheating on your wife this week, but it's sin. We've talked about in this 2020 campaign, which had nothing to do with mandatory giving, but we underlie that with the fact that all of us are called to give financially. If you're not giving, you're in sin. Oh, it's a small sin in the sense that no one's going to go, because <gasps> you're going to say, well, I'm in a really tough place financially. I can't get great sin. Reading the Bible. We have our daily Bible reading. We have all these things we try to do to encourage your Bible. You may not have, how was your time in the Word this week? Well, I didn't get very many days, and no one's going to go, <gasps> but it's sin. You are called to be a person that has the Word of Christ richly dwelling in you. You can't do that unless you get it in your life. You're called to handle the Word of God accurately. You're called to be all these things as it relates to the Word of God, like good Bereans. Prayer? How's your prayer life? Well, I've been really busy this week. Sin. And James says, don't tell me you love God. Don't tell me you have faith in God. If you don't have the deeds to back it up, do we fail? Absolutely. If you say you're without sin, you're lying. We all stumble in many ways, James says. We do. But the change in your life ought to be evident. And the really, the quality of your love is really going to come down to what kind of lifestyle is coming out of your repentant conversion. You should be spending more time in your church family than you have before. Why? Because the Bible says it. All the more, as you see the day drawing near, you ought to not forsake the assembly. These are the kinds of commands that you and I have got to get serious about. Time to strengthen our church with a very unpopular message in our modern day. But I'm asking you to give some thought to this. So you spend some time confessing your sins. You spend some time celebrating with thanksgiving the cost of forgiveness. How can you sit here today with no sin on your account? Christ paid the penalty. His pain was your penalty. But then you spend some time so that we walk out of here so that Christ doesn't say to you, why are you sleeping? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You're doing exactly what I asked you to do. Power through it. If it costs you, great. Whatever inconvenience, whatever sweat it may cost you. You resolve to follow the Lord this week in obedience. We saved by our good works? Nope, that's the whole point of the cross. But if we are saved, those good works will follow. As a matter of fact, the Bible says you should be zealous for good works. Josiah Condor wrote this hymn, 1856. Oh, the love beyond the reach of thought that formed the sovereign plan before Adam had our ruin wrought of saving fallen man. God had so loved our rebel race as his own son to give that whoever will, amazing grace, may look to him and live. Amazing love. Amazing love.